I see a lot of attorneys coming up that some have gotten that piece and some have not. And the ones that haven't, they don't understand why they're not advancing quite as quickly as some of the ones that are. Looking to make partner? Find time to strategically go the extra mile. And it's because they may be great practitioners, they may be great you know, billers or whatever it is, but it's that like extra little piece that you kind of have to show yourself to stand out and you have to, you have to kind of be a team player. According to a recent survey, only 19% of managing partners in U.S. law firms are female. We would like to see that change. Hello, and welcome to LawHer, the show where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal field. Be inspired by their stories, learn from their mistakes, and look forward to the future they're helping build for the next generation of women in law. I am Sonia Palmer, your host and VP of Operations at Rankings, the SEO agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is LawHer. Kelly Burris is a senior litigation partner at Cordell & Cordell. Over the past 15 years, Kelly has helped open multiple offices throughout Texas, received best lawyers in Dallas under 40, Texas rising star and super lawyer from super lawyers for a combined eight years. She specializes in family law and has handled multi-million dollar estates. She's also at the forefront of the intersection of cryptocurrency and the law. On today's episode, I sat with Kelly to discuss her rise to senior litigation partner, while balancing her home life as a single mom and what it takes to go the extra mile and secure the position you want. We dive into the changing legal landscape of cryptocurrency, hidden assets, and how to find them, as well as tax evasion. Let's dive in. I think a lot of people go in to law school kind of going, well, this sounds like something I might be good at, and I want to have a career and a profession. And I was kind of no different. I was young, 22. I went right through school. I never had a gap year or anything like that. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So law school sounded like a good alternative and like you could do a bunch of different things with it. And so, you know, just kind of fell into my career since then. But I think it was different than what I expected. I certainly learned how to think differently. What was surprising to me is that I thought I would learn kind of the ins and outs of becoming a lawyer, like how to practice. And really what I learned was more how to think like an attorney. And then those practice skills sort of come later. Did you feel like you had a support system while you were in school? Did you have to develop it? Or was it something that sort of came natural as you guys are all going through this together? Absolutely. In fact, some of my best friends in my life came from law school. I still, the godmother of my my girls, my children, I met in law school. <laughs> in law school, and then a couple of years later, the best friends that I've had throughout my life because I do think at that point in your life, you're, you have common interests. So you are meeting people with more similar personalities and you are just going through these sort of trials and tribulations. My group that I was very close with in law school, we were all pretty far away from home. A lot of kids that are in undergrad, some of those kids live close and some live far, but a lot of them are within a few hours drive and relatively close. And some of those kids are still going home for the weekends and things like that. And in law school, you don't have that, that luxury. And most of us are pretty far from home. So it really was like a family. You kind of talked about thinking like a lawyer, like you learned that at law school. Were there other things that you wish there had been more of, things you wish you could have done more of while you were there? 
I think that the practice, it's changed a lot. I mean, it's been quite some time since I was in law school, but a little over, over 20 years. So I do think that they are concentrating more in law schools now on that practice element. They were sort of transitioning a little bit when I was in law school from that sort of the Socratic method and, you know, really look to your left and look to your right. And the whole law school is really hard and we're just going to grill you until you die and that kind of thing, you know, and they were transitioning away from that to some extent. I mean, I had some procedural classes. Now they're doing, my understanding is a lot of law schools have clinics and they really encourage more internships and clinics and things like that. Even if it's an unpaid clerkship, just so you can get into a law firm and really learn while you're in law school. And so I think that those legal clinics are extremely helpful because most practitioners are going to go into a practice where they really are having to take a law, you know, a lawsuit from beginning to end. And that's not something that I was really taught. I feared for those classmates that went out and immediately went out on their own. And I just, I mean, it just seemed like walking malpractice. Because, I mean, I I wouldn't have had the first clue how to take a, a lawsuit by myself from beginning to end, much less nobody to talk to and no real help. So, you know, I think that that's changed quite a bit. As you were transitioning from law school to then career and working as a lawyer, what kind of drew you to Cordell and Cordell? I was a juvenile prosecutor and did child protective services work for about the first two years out of law school. I joined a county attorney's office up in Grayson County that is closer to the Texas border. Did that. I started out three months in in misdemeanor and then they switched me over to juvenile and CPS. And that's really how I kind of fell in love with family practice because I hadn't really wanted to do that in law school. I'd wanted to do criminal. I'd wanted to do oddly enough, international or human rights or something like, you know, very pie in the sky law school type (laughs) dreams and started doing CPS and juvenile work and loved it and really, really loved that aspect of it. And then when you're in that county attorney practice, there's only so far you can go kind of in a career in that. And as much as I loved it, I'd kind of reached the max of where I was going to be in that position and doing that kind of work at like 27, 28. So after a couple of years, I got a job with a private practice family law firm in Dallas, did that for a couple of years, moved from there to sort of a big firm with a boutique family law section. So about 120 lawyer firm that did all kinds of civil litigation. And then they had a really small family law practice. Did that for a couple of years. And then I got an offer from Cordell and Cordell. And I was actually recruited by three or four different firms at that time. And that's the thing in your practice, when you're about a six to eight, 10 year lawyer, that's sort of your most, I feel like it's your most marketable and you get most recruited. So I was recruited by a bunch of different law firms. I almost, it was between Cordell and another firm. And I just really liked this. At the time, Cordell was a, I don't want to say small firm. It wasn't small, but it only had eight offices. Now I think we're up to 70 or 80 something. Wow. (laughs) No, it's crazy. That's gross. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of growth, Um, but I saw that potential in it. And I liked the idea of, I was the first attorney to be hired in the Texas offices. They had somebody who had come down and opened the Dallas office, but I was the first hire that was sort of from Texas. And I just saw the growth potential of the firm and loved kind of their, kind of their deal. Um, And I, I saw a lot of uh, potential for it. So yeah. And I've been with there 15 years. So. 15 years. Yeah. You've been there a long time. So uh, you got to kind of pioneer that down there as they were opening that up. That's really cool. 
To some extent. I, I mean, I definitely had a role. You know, I saw pretty much all of the offices with the exception of Dallas open and was instrumental. And I moved from Dallas to Austin to open the Austin office because I was from here, Austin originally. Um, and then San Antonio, I helped open Fort Worth. Um, and so Houston was really the only one that I kind of didn't have anything to do with. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so so the growth has been has been great. I love that. You talked a little bit about kind of like what drew you to family law. Is there anything else that attracted you to that? Why you really decided to have that be your career? I have a lot of respect for criminal lawyers on both sides because their job to some extent, they have to be very black and white about it. And it's not a very black and white type of thing. And so I think what drew me to family law is I liked the gray. I liked being able to help families and help people and going through tough times of their lives. Um, we kind of have a saying that, and I'm going to try to get this straight. I'm, I'm terrible with getting sayings correct, but, um, you know, the saying is like, you know, criminal attorneys see the worst people on their best days and family law attorneys see the best people on their worst days. (laughs) So, you know, you see just normal everyday people that are really going through a tough time and, and helping them and helping their families through that. You know, I also tell clients all the time, especially when you have consults will come in and they'll be like, well, what's your win record? What do you, mm-hmm. you know, how, how many cases or trials do you win? And we don't really win or lose in family law. I kind of tell them what I consider a win is when a judge does something close to what I think a judge is going to do in a, in a certain type of case. So for me, if if the judge does something that I think, think is kind of fair and equitable, because especially in divorces, a lot of them are just have very black and white views of what things should be. And sometimes the rulings and the agreements that we end up with end up being long-term better for their families, even if initially they're not thinking that way. So trying to get clients through to meet their goals as much as possible, but to get them through the process so they come out on the other side as healthy and as whole as possible is, is a nice goal. And you know, you're trying to help and save families. So that to me was, was the real attraction for it. And I do think that family law is also unique. Like there's a lot of hurt involved in a lot of these things, but when it's a family that's breaking, it's like, it's a different type. So I, I definitely understand why being able to limit the damage or like you said, to kind of navigate those initial emotions and fears to protect the long-term outcome would be very rewarding. Is there a specific case that you can think of that was very rewarding to you? There have been so many. Helping parents who are getting denied possession for no particular purpose are kind of the ones that are the most memorable to me. So I've had some cases where you have one parent that um, and I, I hate to get into specifics because they'll know who they are vague. <laughs> um, uh, without, without giving too much away, but I've, especially just relatively recently within the last couple of years, I've had a case where a mother was denying possession to a disabled father, largely because of his disability. And there was nothing wrong with him. Like he's, he's a great dad, his history prior to some, his disability issues. And that was probably one of my most rewarding cases because they went from not seeing that child for, I think they saw him like once in over a year 
and only for a few days to seeing him monthly and having this wonderful relationship. And now that kiddo is going to grow up with a strong relationship with his dad and his grandparents that would have never happened had we not gotten involved. So those are one of those cases that's just so extremely rewarding. And knowing that now that, you know, that kiddo is going to have this something that's unequal and, and can never be replaced. And having a part of that is important and special. Kelly finds her work extremely rewarding, and I wanted to know what it took for her to secure a position as a senior litigation partner. I lateral transferred um, a couple of times and so came into Cordell with quite a bit of experience. And then I got board certified while I was at Cordell. So in Texas, there's a board certification for all lawyers. We can get board certified, which is sort of a specialty. It's a little bit of a big deal. <laughs> uh, you can brag. Go ahead. It's a, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and it's, it's a difficult thing to do. And so that was part of it. So trying to just develop myself professionally, even before Cordell, I was really involved with Texas Young Lawyers Associations. Uh, I try to speak and write and anytime I can. And it's not just because I want to get my name out there, because honestly, I've been at Cordell 15 years. I'm, I mean, I feel like my job is pretty secure, so I don't feel the need to, you know, go out and pad my resume because I'm looking for something else, but it's something I love to do. So I love to speak and I love to write and I like to, you know, teach and that kind of thing. So other than just litigating, that's kind of, I love doing that stuff. So, you know, and I have my entire career. So any chance I've ever gotten to write or speak or do anything like that, I will take it. But I also think that helped me in within Cordell and it helped my career and just really kind of also being there for what they needed, being willing to volunteer. And yes, it, it was extra work and it was extra time. And sometimes you feel like, hey, I'm doing all this extra effort and, and I'm not really getting rewarded for it. But the reward comes through long term. So the reward comes from the executive partners and the people, because especially because we're out of state. So our corporate is in St. Louis. And at the time I was kind of coming up through the ranks, all of the partners were in St. Louis. So getting recognized and getting known and just sort of knowing that who they, that they know who I am really helps. And, you know, I see a lot of attorneys coming up that some have gotten that piece and some have not. And the ones that haven't, they don't understand why they're not advancing quite as quickly as some of the ones that are. And it's because they may be great practitioners. They may be great, you know, billers or whatever it is, but it's that like extra little piece that you kind of have to show yourself to stand out and you have to, you have to kind of be a team player. Every firm wants team players and it's not going to happen overnight. Like it's, it's going to take years, but so I think that's another lesson for attorneys kind of coming up is that there are some dues paying that has to be done. And so you can't come in and work for someplace for three years and go, I'm going to make partner or I'm going to you know, get this huge advancement. And it's important to have those discussions with whoever's managing you because it's important to know kind of where you stand, what trajectory, what things you can do better to get to where you want to be. And sometimes things don't just always, it's not a great fit. Like sometimes you're, you think you're going one direction and that may not be the, the fit for you. And you might have to kind of converge off and go a different direction and be open to that as well. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. I think, especially today, women in a uh, sort of like an aggressive industry, like legal, 
you have to work so much, put in extra hours, and then you deal with things like burnout and balancing the family. But I do think you can fill gaps. So it's not just necessarily about extra work or working more, but finding what's really needed and then pursuing that, like fill the gap. And then you don't have to like burn yourself out doing stuff that's just extra, but stuff that's really going to make an impact. And, you know, and I think you can do it on times when you have room to fill or space to fill. I mean, like I said, I have two little girls. I'm a single mom and trying to balance is really difficult. And I don't think I'm always hitting all cylinders at all times, but I do sometimes I'll concentrate more on the kids. And sometimes I feel like a little bit lesser of a lesser employee. And then other times I'll concentrate on work and sometimes feel like I'm not not so great mom, you know, I mean, it is hard. I mean, I think we struggle with that, but you do have to kind of figure out when you have time to do those things. And especially for, for people who have those gaps. And so like before I had children, I spent a lot of time on my career and work and that freed me up to be able to have a little bit more leeway when I just did decide to have kids, then I'm not having to maybe put in quite so many hours as I did when I was younger, earlier in my career. And so finding those gaps. And I know that when they're going to get to a certain age and they're a little bit more self-sufficient, I'll be able to kind of focus again more on career. Are there any female lawyers in the family law space that we should be following and why? Anybody that stands out to you? My stuff is sort of local. <laughs> so, so it, you know, names and information I would give are, are sort of local. You know, I have this, this good friend, Catherine Lewis, Katie Lewis in Dallas that started her own firm there. And um, she's doing amazing and she's a fantastic litigator. I'm always in, constantly impressed by her. If I have referrals for anyone in Dallas, that's who I send them to. And she's really growing her business. It's really amazing and, and interesting to watch and see. We have several attorneys in in our firm that I've seen them kind of grow over the years up and coming and and doing really well. Jill Massey is one of the attorneys in our um, Atlanta office, and she just recently made partner, I guess it was about a year ago. She's very impressive. Um, uh, Bridget Landry. I mean, I I have so many names. I can't tell you within our firm because those are the people I know. Um, They're all, I mean, they're just amazing women. And wow, uh, Lisa Cargis. And I mean, all the people that I'm partnered with. (laughs) So I think I'm biased, (laughs) Marcy. (laughs) Oh, you just know them. Yeah, it's excellent. <laughs> yeah, they're they're fantastic. They're all just very impressive attorneys. And I also see other see women coming up through other fields as experts. So I deal with a lot of financial experts and that has been over the years a big boys club. I've been working a lot with an expert, Denise French in Houston, who's fantastic. She's wonderful. I've been doing a lot of cryptocurrency recently and I haven't really worked with this person as much, but there was a woman that started doing cryptocurrency expert work. It's cool to see those financial expert roles starting to be filled by women because I feel like that was to some extent sort of the last bastion of the boys club when it came to litigation is, is those financial experts. And we see them all the time in custody and sort of more softer sciences and those more, you know, traditional role type things, which is great. I always love it when I see women in roles that you don't always see them in that uh, like tech, like what you're doing, <laughs> um, those financial positions. Yeah. Women in, in finance, I always think is, is fascinating. And I'm always, I'm always very proud to see that. <laughs> Kelly is not only an expert in family law, but a thought leader when it comes to cryptocurrency. As one of the hottest and least understood areas of the law, 
I wanted Kelly to give us a 50,000 foot view of what crypto is, how it's mined and where it's stored. This is one of the things that got me so interested in it. It's just a piece of data on a publicly distributed blockchain. You don't get something. There's no physical thing that you get in exchange for investing in crypto. You essentially get a long string of characters on a spreadsheet, essentially a publicly distributed spreadsheet that's online that anyone can access. The, anybody in the universe with a, with a computer and a, a link to the internet can, can access it. And you go on, these pieces of data are traded. So that's the public key is what is listed on the blockchain. And that can be traced and tracked. And that's essentially what mining is, is, is instead of a business or financial institution monitoring what is going on with the cryptocurrency or with the data that's listed on the blockchain. So to make sure that there's no fraud, nobody's stealing it or using it twice, people go on and they monitor the blockchain. So they go in and they figure out, make sure that the data, it's almost like if you had, I had um, an expert use this once that it's like reading a serial number. Like if you had a serial number on a piece of currency and you were trying to track that serial number. But all of that information and data is on that blockchain. And so miners go in and they monitor the blockchain to essentially make sure everything is on the up and up. And those miners get paid in cryptocurrency for mining that data. And in order to get your piece of data that is sort of on that blockchain, you have to have like a, a password or what's called a private key, which is another long series string of numbers. And if you lose that private key, you lose the cryptocurrency. So you lose your access, your ability to access that public key, essentially. So that's why you hear all these stories about billions in, in Bitcoin that have been lost over the years that they estimate there's just been billions and billions of dollars worth of, of Bitcoin that are gone because people just lose the private keys and they don't have that information. So it's, it's just gone. So that's essentially what it is. And the reason it has value is because people invest in it. So people buy and it's limited. So they only... The people that put it out are the, the people that are originating the coin, um, whether it's Bitcoin or any other kind of altcoin or cryptocurrency. Most of them are limited. There's some that are not, but um, most cryptocurrency is limited by the amount they distribute. That's why Bitcoin keeps going up and up and up, and it varies in value when people buy and sell because there's only so much of it. So in order for it's it's not like a currency that's in a country where they can just produce more if we sort of run out. <laughs> like there's a limited number of Bitcoin. So that's one of the reasons it increases in value. And it's like cash. So, you know, you can send it virtually anywhere in the world for free. And now that some countries are kind of cracking down on that, but it really is, you can transfer it anywhere in the world. You don't, it's not like cash where you have to declare it. If you bring a hundred thousand dollars into a country, you have to go through customs. You don't have to really, I mean, you have to pay tax on capital gains, <laughs> but <laughs> but it's not like, you know, transitioning from one um, place to another. It's some exchanges in some places will have a small fee for transactions, but it's relatively free to uh, transact and transport depending on the platform you're using. So it really is, it's an exciting area. And it is something that, I mean, I, I will tell you when I first started looking at it, I didn't really understand it. And I had a couple of cases where I just had to educate myself. And that's kind of how I learned to talk about it. And because I don't come from an IT background, that's why I feel like I've been pretty successful in, in giving these speeches because I didn't know about it. So I'm explaining it to other people who are not tech-minded because I'm not tech-minded. So I kind of, I always, I like to say- I have to explain it to yourself. Exactly. Yeah. It's like cryptocurrency for dummies. <laughs> because I wasn't one of the dummies. That makes sense. Yeah. You had to explain it to yourself 
So now you're able to explain it to others in a way that worked for you. That makes, that makes sense. Yes. I got a grip on it, but the mining part of it is where I'm always like, Hmm. Okay. (laughs) Can you talk about the difference between that private and public key? Yes. The private key is something you hold in a wallet. And like I said, it's almost kind of like a password. So it's what you use to access the public key that that is what's publicly distributed. So the public key that's on the actual blockchain is you can't backtrace that. So if I know if I have this public key, I can't go and find out who the owner of that public key is, but I can see when that public key, when that bit of coin, and the the public key is essentially the coin, right? That's the, the crypto or the currency. And so I can see how that public key has been transacted when it's gone from one person to another, how much. So all of that is on that blockchain. And that's what the miners look at. So the miners don't know anything about the public keys. They're just trying to make sure, I mean, the private keys, sorry. They're just trying to make sure that all of those transactions are are sort of on the up and up. And anybody can be a miner. I mean, I know a guy that has a, has a, a system, has a bunch of servers and stuff in his basement and mines cryptocurrency in his basement. And then you hear about these huge companies that set up, you know, multiple servers and huge sort of campuses where they have all this technology where they're, you know, they've got big mining operations. Can you overview of what the legal industry sort of looks like regarding crypto right now? I think the biggest issue is nobody's really paying attention to it. I will tell you in family law, We do discovery in a lot of cases, and I've never had another attorney send me a discovery request about cryptocurrency ever, even if I've had clients that owned it. Now, there's some general type questions that, you know, can probably address that. But if you're really trying to find hidden assets, which what that's usually what these this discovery is trying to find is they're trying to make sure somebody's disclosing all of their assets, asking specific questions about it to make sure that nobody can do anything hinky should be important. Um, and asking for that, you know, the, that information is important. Now, if, you know, we have, we have a big firm, so I've had other attorneys in other offices that have called me that said they got, they have a crypto issue or something like that. But for the most part, very few people are asking about it or worrying about it. And it's hugely popular. I mean, billions and billions and billions of dollars in this industry. And it's really, I mean, if you know what you're doing, it's it's an easy asset to hide. It's like cash, right? So your brother can give you, you can take cash out from an ATM and go to a Bitcoin ATM and buy Bitcoin at an ATM machine and it's virtually untraceable. So, and then all you have is the private key and that's the only record of it you have. So most people buy in exchanges. So most people buy in a traceable way, but there are certainly ways to buy it to where it's really sort of untraceable to some extent. So making sure you're asking about that, that's a huge thing, especially in family law. And I think in any other kind of civil litigation where someone's income or assets are important, that's going to be hugely important to be asking those questions. The other issue I think that we're going to be running into is tax evasion. (laughs) I think that there's a lot of issues with tax evasion in cryptocurrency. So the tax lawyers probably need to be on the the lookout for it because like cash, most exchanges don't report. uh, There's some that do, but most exchanges aren't reporting you know, you don't get statements. It's not like, and and again, with that private key, you don't have to be in an exchange. You don't have to hold your cryptocurrency in an exchange. So if you are making a fortune off of cryptocurrency, if you're not claiming that on your taxes, that's tax fraud. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people don't even understand if they're even dabbling in it, you know, they don't get that 
this is just like any taxable income. It's something that you have to claim on your taxes. You have to get a claim capital gains. And so, you know, that's, I think, another issue that's that's really coming to the forefront. So if you suspect that someone is hiding it, what do you do? Is that when a forensic expert comes in or like, how do you go about trying to uncover it? I, first, we start with a discovery process, right? So we first start asking those questions, um, get copies of bank statements, copies of other financial information, because most people are not going to buy cryptocurrency with cash, right? So most people are going to usually buy it off and into an exchange. So they'll go like to Coinbase or one of these other exchanges, and they'll put in their bank account or credit card number or whatever and buy cryptocurrency that way. So usually if you pull all of those bank statements and credit card statements, there's going to be, and, and look through them. Um, there's a lot of times going to be some record of, of purchase of cryptocurrency. If it's something where there's a large purchase, many purchases over time. So some, the way that some people buy crypto is they'll buy, you know, they'll do hundred dollars a week or something like that, where they're buying a lot of crypto over time. So, you know, based on those transactions, you might want to hire an expert to kind of trace out those transactions and figure that out. If you know that an exchange, that a party has used an exchange, a lot of these exchanges do have, like Coinbase has a tax history. So they will have a transaction history that you can go in and download. So I always request based on what exchange, if I know somebody's using a particular exchange, I'll go in and see how, figure out how to pull that information from that exchange. So if that exchange produces those transaction documents or transaction type information, I'll go in, figure out how to pull that. And then I'll specifically put it in my discovery request that, hey, this is how you go. We do it with Facebook already. A lot of attorneys will have instructions on how to pull a Facebook history in their discovery. So I do that with cryptocurrency. Well, I'll have instructions on here's how you go into Coinbase and you pull, this is exactly what I want. But then I also ask for private keys, public keys. Where do you store interrogatories about? Where do you store your, your wallet? Um, so the wallet is what you would keep your, your private key in. Where do you store that information? And so then if we need to go and do further after that kind of initial investigation, if we're still having a hard time tracking it down, I would hire an expert. I mean, there are some, when I do my PowerPoint, I had an expert that gave me a bunch of websites and other things that you can pull pneumocytes of like a Bitcoin, like a blockchain trace kind of thing where you can put in a public key and you can kind of figure out what transactions have occurred with that public key. So once you know what the public key is, you can go in and get more information out of it. But honestly, why pay me my billable rate to do that kind of, you know, haphazardly when I'm not an expert in it, when we can pay somebody who is an expert, probably less <laughs> hourly, that can do a better job with it. So that's always why when I encourage clients to hire experts, it's because, hey, yes, I can probably do this work for you, but it's going to take me longer. I'm not going to do as good of a job because it's not really my, my thing. I just learned about it. And you're going to be billed more per hour than if we go and hire an expert that knows exactly what they're doing, can get it done more quickly and get you much better results. And we can have that person testify if necessary. So I do not hesitate in hiring experts when needed. But yeah, I think that initial preliminary stage to try to find out if there's if there's a there there 
And then once there's a there there, then going in and and high potentially hiring an expert, especially if you think it's significant. Like I own cryptocurrency, but I'm not like I don't have like a hundred thousand dollars in cryptocurrency. You know, I dabble, so I don't know that my dabbling would be worth somebody going out and hiring an expert if I were going to get a divorce because they're not going to get much bang for that buck. But if you do sense that there is is significant assets there for that, then I think going and hiring an expert is going to be crucial. So. For those curious in both kind of like professional and personal capacity, are there other resources that we should seek out to sort of understand this better? Um, I, you know, <laughs> I say just Google the public key <laughs> and, you know, I just Google things. Honestly, it's, it's shocking. It's always shocking to me how much information I can pull <laughs> just Googling it, you know, d- just doing a search, a web search for what the information that you're needing and that you're looking for and starting there, just starting there and kind of opening that sort of Pandora's box to find information. I mean, obviously you have to be careful what you do pull and make sure it's valid and accurate. You know, there are CLEs. I'm giving a ton of CLEs. I'm seeing CLEs all the time, like continuing education classes on cryptocurrency that anybody can sign up for. A lot of them are free or low cost. And I know that I have like a a list of a couple of experts that I go to if I have questions about this kind of stuff that I retain if I need an expert to do a tracing or valuation or something like that. So all of those are great sources going to those kind of cutting edge seminars is I think important because a lot of the times the the CLEs we go to as lawyers are kind of, it's sort of regurgitating the same information that we've all heard a lot with just a little bit of new information. And so, you know, finding those types of seminars that are really sort of on the cutting edge of what you're working on is, is interesting. Like I just, I have a case right now. So maybe my next foray is marijuana, the dispensaries and and businesses related to marijuana production. Um, That's kind of my next area of interest. And I'm learning more and more about it. As a search engine optimization expert, I can always get behind advice of just Google it. So (laughs) I'm always, I'm always for that. Yes. Google will give you a good, a good result. So I love that. (laughs) What do you see in the future for crypto and law? Do you think there's anything on the horizon, some stuff that's coming up? I think just more and more attorneys, more and more people are going to start getting wise to it. So uh, for anybody out there that's trying to hide assets through cryptocurrency, you're not going to be able to get away with it for long if you're getting away with it now. I get constant emails, so many that I can't really even respond to them all about people with cases in this area. I've asked to be an expert and I'm like, no, 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 you don't need me as an expert. You need this other person. (laughs) We're going to see more and more major assets and more and more investment. And I think soon a cryptocurrency account or cryptocurrency holdings is going to be as common as, you know, maybe like a 401k or a stock plan. That's going to be as, as time goes on, that's how people are going to exchange money internationally and, and invest. I think the crypto market will probably stabilize to some extent at some point. Um, it, it swings wildly now, but I've even seen Bitcoin. I mean, I shouldn't say it's stabilized because like over the last year, it's dropped 20,000. <laughs> You'll see some of the, those more major cryptocurrencies become a little bit more stable um, as far as an investment strategy and investment plan. And you'll just see people with crypto accounts or holdings just be just as common as someone with a, you know, a money market account or, a, you know, a brokerage account or something like that. And matter of fact, now a lot of the brokerages are getting into selling cryptocurrency. I think E-Trade, I have an E-Trade account and E-Trade is starting to be, you're able to buy cryptocurrency through E-Trade. Venmo, you can buy cryptocurrency 
Venmo. So it's so easy. And it's something that, that I think we're just going to be seeing in all these different cases and pretty much every case. I, I agree. Uh, one more question for you. If you were not a lawyer, what would you be? Oh, uh, if I had any dream job, I would probably be some kind of international travel writer. I would do something where I got to tra- travel is sort of my passion. And, and um, so I'd probably do some career where I got to travel a lot more. <laughs> Law school may help change the way you think to become a stronger advocate, but it's what is learned in the after school hours that can be the most valuable to your career. When looking to get to secure a senior position at a firm, go the extra mile. Look for opportunities as a speaker, write articles, and be a team player. Follow what interests you and know what your wins look like and keep at it. Some advancements just take time. A huge thank you to Kelly for sharing her story and unbelievable insights with us today. You have been listening to Lawher with me, Sonia Palmer. If you found this content insightful, inspiring, or it just made you smile, please share this episode with a trailblazer in your life. For more about Kelly Burris, check out our show notes. And while you're there, please leave us a review or a five-star rating. It really goes a long way for others to discover the show. And I'll see you next week on Law Her, where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of her field. <laughs>